Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Horror from the High Desert podcast. I am your host, Scotty Milder, and my guest this week is Zachary Rosenberg. Uh, so, Zachary is a Jewish writer of horror, science fiction, and fantasy living in Florida. By night, he writes fantastical and horrifying tales, and by day, he practices law, which is even more frightening. His debut novellas, Hungers As Old As This Land and The Long Shalom, are released by Brigands Gate and Off Limits Press, respectively. His work can be found on various anthologies and magazines, including Shakespeare Unleashed, Nightmare Sky, Dark Matter Magazine, The Deadlands, and many more. His first novel, The Devils in the Deep Blue Sea, will be published by Dark Lip Press, and you can find him on Twitter at Zach Rose Writer. So I saw Zachary on a panel at StokerCon, and I just thought I really had to get him on the podcast. Uh, we had a really good, interesting conversation. We cover everything from Jewish horror, folk horror, cosmic horror, uh, and even spaghetti westerns like The Great Silence, which we talk about uh, here at the end. Now, one thing you'll notice is that the sound quality at the beginning of the episode is not great. We do get that fixed, so if you can hang in until roughly around the 10-minute mark, it does significantly improve from there. So let's go ahead and dive in with Zachary Rosenberg. Um, so you were kind of a new discovery for me, I have to admit. I had was not familiar with your work before StokerCon this year, but I did see you on a panel about horror westerns. Yes. And you immediately uh, kind of piqued my interest because you were talking about, you know, not only did you write a horror western, but you wrote a Jewish horror western. And, yes, I did. And like I told you afterwards, you know, I live in the West. Or I live in the Southwest. I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I'm Jewish, and I'm a horror writer. So, <laughs> yeah, it kind of. I was like, well, this is just perfect. So, uh, I do want to get to your work here in a second. Uh, I did read. Uh, I have read uh, "Hungers as Old as This Land." I'm almost done with the Long Shalom. Thank you so much. And that's your uh, brand new novel. Came out what? Just like a week or a couple weeks uh, ago. Yeah, just about two weeks ago, actually, uh, give or take. Yeah, and they're both really excellent. And then I also Thank read you. your short story, Wolves Within. So uh, Yes. Yeah. Yes, uh, with Kevin J. Kennedy's collection. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that was a fun one. That is a fun one. I actually really enjoyed that story, and I want to kind of get to it, because I think, if I'm not mistaken, it's got some ties to some of your other stuff. But before we kind of dive into that, I just want to get a sense of, like, you're, I read your bio, uh, you're a lawyer right by yes, day yes, that's the day job yeah <laughs> um so just kind of give me a little bit of like a sense of your backstory and kind of how you found your way to being a horror writer absolutely well i've always been a horror fan really like mm-hmm. ever since i was a kid i loved um you know rl stein was really like my first real gateway in there mm, yeah and you know my uncle had all like a lot of the old universal horror tapes so i would see things like dracula and the wolfman and you know other ones like power of london and mm. you know like so like all that stuff like the classics right like i would read like you know the horror paperbacks in the library you know from our bunch from arl stein to christopher pike and bone chillers and all like those little uh takeoffs and then i went to the, like, the young adult ones and you know like even from arl stein and christopher pike there were just so many mm-hmm. and from that i really went on to kind of like the classic short stories like the monkey's paw and mm. uh, you know, like the most dangerous game and from there, it was really just branching off for things like watching The Twilight Zone, um, mm-hmm. all kinds of, you know, like some of the new horror movies. Like one of the first big ones I saw in theaters was probably The Ring. Oh, yeah. Then it was just, you know, going going all across, watching, you know, like TV shows when I was a kid, like things like Buffy and Supernatural and, you know, <laughs> uh, The Outer Limits. Oh, God, The Outer Limits. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, you know, the new, like The Outer Limits remake and, like, that is the most unfair show I've, I think I've ever seen. That is like, <laughs> not like the Twilight Zone, like, oh, this is an interesting twist ending. This is like, oh, no, we're just going to destroy your soul with this twist. Right. <laughs> uh, so. That's It's <laughs> funny because the Twilight Zone, um, I, I have a feeling you're younger than me. I'm 45. I think you're a little bit uh, yeah, on the younger. What was that? 34. So about 10 year difference, 11 year difference between us. And, you know, the Twilight Zone was a big influence on me, the 80s version of the Twilight Zone. And then another one, you just talk about the outer limits and the kind of destroy your soul aspect of it. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I don't suppose you've ever seen, uh, you're probably a little too young for it, but it was an anthology show from the 80s called Freddy's Nightmares. It was basically like a horror anthology with Freddy. <laughs> I've seen some on like, uh, on like Tubi and stuff. Yes. Yeah. 
that one was a huge, that was a big deal to me. That was on late at night. <laughs> <laughs> and I definitely, there are some images from that that have stuck with me over the years. Yeah. And, you know, like those things like catching on like the late night horror stuff on like, you know, cable shows. And that really just led me into like the classics and everything. And from there it was, uh, you know, like really, um, I would just write stuff on my own, mm -hmm. uh, you know, very good stuff. It was only like really last year I decided I was going to start um, writing and submitting. Oh, interesting. So very recent. So, interesting. Yeah, yeah, really, really, really quite recent. So that's um, that's kind of where I am now. I've been doing I've been doing the writing submissions for about a year and a half now, almost. Wow. Yeah. So things are moving fast because you've already got some short stories. I guess you would call Hunger's as old as this land as a novella. Yeah, that and Long Shalom would both be novellas. Yeah, Long Shalom is a little longer, so it's like kind of mm -hmm. like it feels to me a little more like a novel, but it is it's still pretty short. It's a quick read. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to do like you know, um, you know, basically just tell a complete story. Tell you know, hopefully do something good mm -hmm. and you know, uh, like good Jewish, so something like someone could sit down and read in like one fun you know sitting. Mm -hmm. What was it? Uh, well, before we get to it, I guess I'm curious. So you're from Florida, right? What part of Florida are you from? I'm in Fort Lauderdale, the Tri-County area. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if you're familiar with uh, Douglas Ford, but I talked to him on here recently. And he's also a Florida writer. Yes, Doug, he's a great, great, great guy. Yeah. Yeah, he really is. And he's a fantastic writer. And we, we talked a lot about Florida and kind of the, the land's kind of influence on his work. Do you find, because of what I've read of yours so far, you haven't, I haven't read anything of yours that's set in Florida. Do you find like being from Florida influences your work at all? Or is it more kind of an escape to go somewhere else? Yeah, no, Florida, um, I, I can't say that anything in Florida really um, directly impacts it. I've had a few horror short stories that are set in Florida, but it's mm -hmm. not something I'll consciously go for there in a sense. Mm -hmm. Usually I'll just kind of set it where I think the story needs to be set. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes, you know, like sometimes I'll use something in Florida just so it's, um, I, I can be a little more familiar with that area. Right. But it's not something I think I consciously pursue. Yeah, because uh, it's interesting, you know, of the work of yours I've read so far, you know, the Hunger's as Old as This Land is set in the Old West, and the Long Shalom is set in New York, and then mm -hmm. uh, I believe Wolves Within, it's set in Poland, right? Uh, yeah, like medieval, uh, medieval Bohemia, basically. Right. So I want to get to the idea of genre mixing mm -hmm. uh, a little bit more, but I'm just curious, one of the aspects of your work seems to be like a definite interest in like different historical periods. Where do you think that? Yes. Where's the draw there? Oh, I am just, I'm, I'm a real history buff. Mm -hmm. um, I love history. I love different historical settings. I love um, exploring different, you know, cultural attitudes and different placements. And there's just so much different uh, things that go along with time, with different time periods and history. Basically, you know, it's so interesting to me because there's so many different events and so many different, you know, cultures and mm -hmm. different um, folklore you can explore. You know, Wolves Within was very interesting to me because that was a time, you know, um, you had... You had, you know, it's it, it's basically a time in Poland's history where you have Jews kind of, you know, living there. They're not fully accepted. They're kind of mm -hmm. other, and that's right. um, a little, and that's you know, it's the same, but it's also different um, from what it would be in a modern day, you know, or what it would be in relative, in a more relatively modern Western setting. Mm -hmm. So that um, that had a lot for me to explore. And there's also the themes of religion and guilt and you know and, and and things like that basically every historical period brings something a little new to it and i mm -hmm. think that's a lot of fun well and one thing so just give a and i'm gonna try and avoid spoilers as much as possible oh, yeah. but wolves within it involves a relationship between a young jewish woman and a nun mm -hmm. in this small village in uh bohemia and I don't want to say a whole lot more than that, other than it involves possibly werewolves and then something else. <laughs> you know, it's it's interesting to me, you know, everything of yours, I've read, I've read three things of yours so far. And the idea of the way you approach uh, bringing in Judaism into your stories, I find really interesting. One thing that really occurred to me when I was reading Hunger's As Old As This Land is... You've got the character, and just to give a little setup of that, that's your Western. Again, it involves a young woman, uh, Esther, she's a young Jewish woman, and then her kind of, a, I guess you could say adopted sister, but essentially her girlfriend, um, Siobhan, who's like an kind of an Irish orphan, and they live in this small you know western town, and I don't think you ever say exactly where they are, do you? It's left a little bit open. Yes. Yeah, so that is set. Um, it's set in Montana. Mm. I wanted to do kind of a setting where, um, you know, an area where the West 
where civilization had come at that well not civilization but american encroachment had come Mm -hmm. and you know but that still was not a full state yet there's still territory there's still a lot of open land right it's not fully in control of the u.s government you had so much um by the way of material of of uh, settler colonialism over there and Mm -hmm. uh you know dominance of corporations like conglomerates things like that that allowed for you know I think a little more freedom with, with the actual setting. Yeah. And I, I did enjoy, I, you know, I wasn't sure if it was, it kind of felt like either Montana or maybe Wyoming to me, but you know, I thought it was interesting, you know, Esther is, she's Jewish, but she's also native American, you know, her, her mother is native American, her father is Jewish. Right. And it's something I've been kind of like asking myself over the last few years. Cause I, you know, I'm, my father was Jewish. My mother was not. Mm-hmm. And I always used to refer to myself as half Jewish. And that always bothered me. That always kind of wrinkled in some way. Right. And I don't think it's really until I actually read Hunger's As Old As This Land and how, you know, Esther's, she's like, I am both. Like, she's like, I am Native American. Right. And I am a Jew. And I thought that really resonated with me. That felt like, you know, rather than be half of one thing. Right. Which is minimizing, you're both of two full things. Right. What was your, what was just the, what led to that choice of kind of giving her that mixed cultural background? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting. Um, first, one of the, uh, one thing I really wanted to go with on that front is the idea of getting away from the, um, the idea that you're half something that you're mm-hmm. not part of a whole there. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's cause, you know, honestly, um, I don't think that's how it should work. And that is, especially at something like Judaism, which is an ethno religion, um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, it, it's not something you can really be half of. Um, and right. it was also kind of important for me to make it so that Esther was a pet was on that patrilineally. Um, you know, obviously mm-hmm. Judaism is passed down matrilineally, matrilineally right. in a lot of ways, which is a bit of a uh, point of disagreement among certain sects. I mean, you know, disagreements among Jewish sects, mm-hmm. shock and awe. Right. <laughs> but um, I'm a believer in patrilineal uh, Judaism being passed down as well, and that that's just valid. Mm-hmm. And obviously, um, Esther is a character who does struggle with that, but she has grown up in the Jewish faith. She's grown up with Jewish culture, mm-hmm. and she identifies very strongly with that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's something that gives her strength. It's something that gives her power. It's something that gives her comfort. And it's something that she chooses for herself. So she can, um, I didn't want to tell an indigenous story because I've said this before, but I don't think that's really my place to tell because I'm not indigenous right. in, that, in, in that sense. I'm not, um, you know, Esther is also creek which is a tribe of Mm -hmm. the um of the east coast and not a tribe you would find in montana at that time Mm. so she would um like she would be just as adrift among the cheyenne or the apache right or the navajo who were you know the more west the more westward tribes so that was very important to me to kind of get across that esther is eventually she reconciles herself like i'm both these are both things that inform me these are both things that make Mm -hmm. me who i am but I'm, but I choose to be Jewish. I identify with being Jewish. This is, this is, you know, still a, such a huge part of my identity and my culture. And it's what um, I believe in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I wanted to get across that, like, that is totally valid. She's still Jewish, even though, you know, in spite of everything else. And Siobhan, I wanted to get across, you know, she's the daughter of an Irish immigrant. She is someone who has converted to Judaism and she is just as Jewish as Esther is or anyone Mm -hmm. else over there. And also a big thing about it was, you know, Siobhan is kind of hinted to be a little more gung-ho about it. Like she'll use Mm -hmm. more Hebrew. She'll, uh, you know, use more like, she'll use more like, you know, sayings. Mm -hmm. She is, you know, but she is someone who loves her faith and her culture very very much in um not in spite of being a convert but because of it and, and I there's think no that, oh sorry go ahead no i was just gonna say i think that was very that was very interesting you know because i have you know in my family i have jewish background i also have southern baptist background some catholic you know native american distantly and one thing i've seen like with uh and i think this is true oftentimes of like the more the the christian converts i've known but i think this is also true in my family on the jewish side is like if you're raised in something mm-hmm. it's easy to kind of take it for granted it's just kind of part of who you are you don't necessarily spend a lot of time thinking about it when you make the choice to join something that's a very active choice yeah and so for siobhan it makes sense for siobhan to be more fervent yeah. in her beliefs because she she wasn't born into it she made this active choice right and it's not just it's not an easy uh process it, it is a process mm-hmm. it is something you have to debt like you know you have to study you have to like show your gung-ho you, it, it's like a siobhan has like gone through a years-long process to be it she is very and she is extremely proud of it mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And that, that was very resonant, I thought. And I thought it came through very clear. You know, I'm fascinated by, you know, my, my upbringing as being Jewish in New Mexico, not around a lot of other Jews, frankly, mm-hmm. you know, didn't have a strong Jewish community the way, you know, some people in my family who live back in, you know, the East Coast and whatnot, right, have a little bit more of that kind of connection to it. And so a lot of my experience of being Jew was really defined by being an other. You know, I wasn't sure what it meant to be Jewish, except I knew what it meant that I was not, which was like everybody else, you know? Yeah, no, I get that. Um, I actually have a story that's kind of touching on that. I'm coming Mm. out with um, Darklet Press for their Reader Beware, Mm. where the hero is, you know, a Jewish kid in a a small town. His family are basically the only Jews there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, well, I'll I'll be very interested to read that one because that's, I wouldn't say I was the only Jew in my town, (laughs) but there weren't a ton (laughs) of us. (laughs) Yeah. And I grew up around a lot of uh, Baptists and it's just, it's a very, um, oh yeah, it's very different. <laughs> but like I said, that really like resonated with me. The idea that, you know, because I've always felt a little bit like kind of untethered from both halves of my background. You know, my mom's family yeah. were Southern Baptist and my mom left that, you know, before I was born, she has nothing to right. do with that. Um, and then my dad's family are Jewish and they're, they're very accepting of me and everything, but I always felt like a little like square peg in a round hole, you know, I got you on that. And I think it's that idea in my mind, I was always a half Jew, you know, always half Jewish. And that, like I said, that felt like, you know, another way of saying not enough of a Jew or something. Right. And so this idea with Esther in particular, but even with Siobhan, who's kind of made this active choice to join this faith and this identity, like that was very resonant to me that like, you, you know, there's something about calling yourself half Jewish that's like a little bit apologetic, like, right, agree, or hedging your bets or something. <laughs> and right. like, um, to just like own it, I like that was very powerful for me when I read that. So you know, thank you for that. <laughs> oh, my, pl- but, my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm really happy to hear it did resonate. Yeah, it really did. I thought, and I want to get, well, I'm going to backtrack a little bit because I'm, I'm, we're kind of jumping around a little bit here. Oh, sure, sure. Fine. But I'm curious, before we get back to the writing, uh, what was your decision to enter law as a career? And what, what in particular is your kind of focus as a lawyer? I do uh, dependency work, like uh, family and child welfare stuff. Mm which is not the most glamorous. It was just kind of... No, but it's important. Honestly, there's no there's no huge story behind it. It was uh, just really, um, hey, I got to do something. I might as well be a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's go from there and uh, we'll, you know, figure it all out as we go. And I've been figuring it all out ever since. <laughs> and um, had you always wanted to be a writer or was it more like just something you decided to do recently? 100%. Writing has always been like my my number one thing. That is really um, where I always wanted to end up on, and I'm really glad I am, so. Yeah, well, and I think it's, you know, one thing that's interesting, you said, you know, your your kind of gateway drug into the genre was like Arl Stein and Christopher Pike. Yes. And it's, I've talked to so many other horror writers. Uh, I interviewed Sarah Tantlinger on my other podcast last year, and she talked about it too. You know, the, the importance of R.L. Stein and Christopher Pike for so many people. I somehow completely missed both of those. <laughs> I went right to Stephen King. <laughs> um, <laughs> what was like, once you had started moving into like the adult, more, I guess you'd say more adult horror, like who were some of your influences there? Oh, when I started moving into adult horror, let me think. Um, you know, obviously Stephen King is one I, I do want to, I do want to give a shout out to, you know, you can't really, mm-hmm. can't really escape Stephen King. No. <laughs> The 800 pound gorilla. Um, also, I, I was kind of a person who always loved things like Frankenstein and Wuthering Heights and Dracula, mm-hmm. like the, uh, the original books. Um, I'm trying to think who else. Short stories were a big part of it too. Um, I would get into people like Robert Aikman, uh, R- Richard, mm. Dangerous Game. Um, Robert E. Howard was a big one. Mm. Yeah, you know, not just because um, I also love fantasy and science fiction, but seeing kind of fantasy blended to horror was really helpful. Mm-hmm. And from there, it really brought me to a lot of uh, modern horror horror writers. Um, I think John Langan was a, was a really huge one oh, for I me. Love- I love John. And uh, I met him at StokerCon just very briefly. Man. And he is the nicest guy. Just such a great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, Laird Barron. Um, mm, yeah. From there, just so many across, just so many across the board. Um, F. Paul Wilson's The Keep was a really big novel for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that, 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 that was a really, really big one. Yeah. Just, oh, God, I'm so bad at, at a memory recall. But yeah, there, there wasn't like any just one big guy. It was kind of like a rush all at once in a sense where I was just kind of like reading 
uh, so many different horror books. What's your kind of background? Because I feel like in particular, both with, well, with all of them, but particularly with The Long Shalom, I feel like there's mm-hmm. there's some Lovecraft in there, but in a very kind of sideways way. What is your kind of relationship with Lovecraft's work? Okay. Um, I wouldn't say it's really Lovecraftian. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of my, my how, how do I put this? My cosmic horror influence was probably Laird Barron and P. Mm. Jelly Clark more than anyone. Yeah, you know those two were definitely the influences. Um, I was I was definitely taking much more stock from them. Lovecraft, because Lovecraft is very much a, you know, this, these creatures are wholly unknown. They are incomprehensible to humanity. They are mm-hmm. um, things that you cannot even perceive in your limited human mind. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily the case with this. Um, these creatures yeah. do have, you know, um, the things that I introduce in this one. They are. 100% perceptible, even if they are, you know, beyond human comprehension in a way, but they do have personalities that humans can understand and mm-hmm. bargain with and fight. Um, that came far more from Laird Barron's The Croning, I would say, uh, more uh, interesting than that. Um, yeah. And also P. Jelly Clark's Ring Shout, which are, um, oh, I haven't read that one. which is a fantastic novella, and I really recommend, you know, that and The Croning, which are both just incredible as far as my relationship with lovecraft goes it's a little complicated um you know obviously we know lovecraft was racist Mm anti-semitic had a lot of issues um there is a great user on twitter who has been publishing a lot of his letters um who goes by the name of bobby d who helps to contextualize him a lot in the time where it's basically you know this is how the time influenced lovecraft's views these are how um these are all the the instances where he could have been a better person and didn't Mm-hmm. But Lovecraft also had a very complicated relationship with Jewish people as well. While he was certainly openly and virulently anti-Semitic in his writings and his right. letters and also in private, he did have um, surprising friendships and even mentorships with Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And he was actually a fan of some of the Jewish uh, horror stories of the time, like the Dybbuk and the Golem. Mm-hmm. So Love, um, Lovecraft is someone I, I can, you know, it, it helps that he's been dead for almost 80 years <laughs> or right. over 80 years. But um, he is someone who I find a very fascinating figure, even if he's not, even if he wasn't who I would characterize as a good person. No. He is someone who I find his fiction can be um, overwrought at times yeah. <laughs> and not very well written at others, but mm-hmm. um, is an inescapable part of the genre. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do not think he is the be-all, end-all of cosmic horror. I think no. there are writers today like John Langan and Laird Barron and Haley Piper who have... Um, Mm-hmm. who have certainly, um, if not surpassed him, made incredible marks like that, like Brian Evanson, mm. who have really left yeah. um, incredible marks on weird fiction and horror. But um, Lovecraft, I do think, deserves you know a lot of credit for where that happened. And I do think there's a lot he did that is certainly quality. It's um, just not the foremost of my... It's not your major. Um, it, it, it's, he's, he's not at the foremost of my influence or my um, or the person who I hearken back to when I'm writing. I certainly love like a good Lovecraftian story. Don't get me wrong, but I find that a lot of his successors have done more interesting stuff. I kind of agree, and you know, I have a love, and I think a lot of horror, you know, modern day horror writers have a real love hate relationship with Lovecraft. Yeah, and I kind of talked about this on my other podcast. I actually did a kind of a, a biographical episode about Lovecraft. And, you know, sort of talked about, you know, I think part of being a horror fan, particularly if you're into cosmic horror, Mm -hmm. you know, like you said, his influence is undeniable, but you kind of like part of being a fan is kind of wrestling with that legacy you know yeah and you can, right and, and and you have to it's you know like there mm-hmm. there are i mean you know speaking as jewish horror fans also mm-hmm. there is a mistakable anti-semitism that has been throughout horror for a very long time um well, it's all about the othering you know right right but also um like let's say uh we're talking about dracula i, I um mm-hmm. I think you, can, you can debate how much of the count himself is influenced by jewish people but there's a bit in the novel where there's just a random jewish character who's likened to look like dracula he's mm. evil and he's greedy and the heroes bribe him to get him along the uh to get him along and you know really there's just kind of a, an expectation for me that if i'm reading a you know a white writer uh, beyond a certain point i'm just either jews are either going to be ignored or there's going to be anti-semitism in there like it's right. going to be one or the other yeah i, I think that's like even if you go back and look at F.W. Murnau's Nosferatu and a lot of the German expressionist films, mm-hmm. I mean, Max Schreck's character, you know, that depiction of a vampire yes. is 100% yeah. a stereotypical depiction of 
the quote unquote rat faced Jew. And yeah. And it's so interesting because of, of how uh, pervasive it is, because uh, there mm-hmm. were a lot of Jewish people who worked on Nosferatu. Uh, Murnau himself actually had a basically the love of his life was a Jewish man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I, I don't even think they set out to be purposefully anti-Semitic with that film. No, it was just, you know, relying on those, you know, those time honored tropes that, uh, you know, and also mm-hmm. the goth uses the wandering Jew as a, as a long tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, you know, something that was always there. The, even like a lot of Jewish writers, when you're reading things like uh, Ira Levine or mm-hmm. um, Rod Serling, they kind of take it for granted that there's a very Christian cosmology to the world, uh, that right. there is a devil and a hell and demons and Jewish, you know, Jewish lore doesn't really work that same way. Well, I've always thought it's fascinating to me that Rosemary's Baby was written by yeah. a Jewish writer. <laughs> I mean, yes. I think that's a really interesting point how, and you know, this is something I, I was also thinking about and, and it's something I've been thinking about kind of over the last few years as we've seen this rise in anti-Semitism in the country. And which has made, for me, my Jewish identity has actually become much more important to me over the last few years. Yeah, It's definitely something I feel like I took for granted for a long time. I know what you mean. But, you know, I, I've thought about this. And again, I talked about this on my other podcast. I did an episode where, uh, where I was talking about Jewish humor and kind of the borscht belt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one thing about Jewish humor is we tend to be very self-deprecating. Yes. Yes. Very, like, very much part of the Jewish kind of cultural language, I think. Um, and, it, you know, it exists in my family. I've been as much a participant in that as anybody else. But I, one thing I've been thinking about is, and I'm curious what you think about this, because I think about the way you've depicted your Jewish characters in your work, mm-hmm. is, you know, by kind of leaning into the self-deprecating pop cultural representation of Jews, even, you know, to the Woody Allen type character and, you know, it's always, you know, the nerd, the kind of sexless nerd or, you know, mm-hmm. my friend Danielle, who I was doing the podcast with, she kind of, the way she put it, she said, it's like you're teaching the anti-Semites how to make fun of you. And what I really appreciated with what you were doing is, you know, if we're talking about Esther in um, Hunger's As Old As This Land or Alan in The Long Shalom or even Adonai in um, Wolves Within, you very much lean into the idea of like Jews as being noble Jews is being tough yeah. Jews is being strong you know there's yeah. the whole trope of the tough Jew you know like the Jewish right guy. and like that's a little bit Alan in the long shalom but you know he's still got his you know he's not a Dutch Schultz or something he's he's right it's about him rediscovering his nobility right. throughout the course of the story there's kind of, you know obviously there is the self-deprecating the nerdy anxious one that you know Woody Allen mm-hmm. very much popularized I think and, you know, I kind of find that as a bit of a, how do I put this, a narcissistic depiction in a sense. Um, mm, interesting. I, I, I am not, it's like, you know, Woody Allen kind of puts himself on screen as vulnerable, but conquering the world in spite of it. I mean, you know, his most mm, famous, mm, yeah. Annie, like, you know, a lot of his movies are centered around, oh, Woody Allen is this little nebbish who gets all the women and like <laughs> kind of the world flips over itself. And, you know, like, I'm not going to say anything about Woody Allen's, you know, personal morality. That's a whole another can of worms I don't want to talk about. But I do find him, um, I do find his work narcissistic in a sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I I kind of find um, a bit bit of better connection in uh, Albert Brooks's work. um, Yes. I I very much agree with that. Yeah. Where there is kind of that um, insecurity and, and, you know, but it is portrayed in a much more of a more vulnerable way but also a stronger way in a sense as he presents it as something defending your life is i think one of my favorite comedies but he presents it as something to overcome for his character something that is you know his character in defending your life is not a particularly brave man he's someone who you know knuckles under a lot throughout his life he's you know he's weak at times but like you know he knows he has to overcome this and he's Mm. stronger you know he really thinks he is yeah. Um, and that I think is a, you know, a really interesting portrayal. Um, on the other hand, kind of a big, um, a kind of um, another big, I would say, influence, I would say for Alan was where the, the book got its title, The Long Goodbye, which is, you know, the story by um, Raymond Chandler, mm-hmm. which is right. one of my favorites. But also it was made into a movie with Elliot Gould as yeah. a private detective. And Gould is a little, he's not very Alan-ish, but he's, he's kind of like the Philip Marlowe, but he's like a little sloppier. He's a He's a bit of a loser. I was going to ask you. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, yeah. obviously I clocked, you know, the long Shalom is definitely a reference to the long goodbye. And we should right. say, whereas um, Wolves is old as, or, or sorry, <laughs> Hunger's as old as this land 
is a horror western uh the long shalom is like a horror noir it's like kind of a hard-boiled right. detective with cosmic horror elements right and i want i was gonna ask you because yeah it's a robert altman directed uh version of the long goodbye with elliot yes. gould and i was gonna ask if that had any if you had seen that 100 percent um you yeah. know like elliot gould in that one you know he's a little messy he's sloppy he's not very good mm-hmm. at uh you know a lot of stuff but he's also really cool in that movie. He is. And, you know, because he's Elliot freaking Gould. He's handsome. He's got, you know, the, he's kind of got the curly hair. He's like, Elliot, Elliot Gould is like the is like the quintessential cool Ashkenazi Jew in a sense. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. he's got, and, and he's done that a long time. But one thing I wanted to get across in the long shalom, uh, there's another portrayal. Um, one portrayal that really stuck with me um, was from Boardwalk Empire, where uh, Michael Stuhlbarg plays Arnold Rothstein. Right. Who is. You know, he's not in the he's not in the long shalom, but his shadow very much hovers over that. Very much, yeah. And Rothstein, um, you know, he plays Stubard plays him to a T, and it is such a compelling and honestly frightening performance how he portrays a character who is, you know, a legitimately evil human being. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't adhere to any of those stereotypes. Rothstein, um, except for being incredibly greedy because he's a mobster, but Rothstein is very much he's very cold he doesn't involve himself emotionally in almost anything mm-hmm. he is business oriented and ruthless and a really dangerous kingpin mm-hmm. um and it is a depiction of judaism as a vil- like a villainous Jew- jewish character who is nevertheless incredibly compelling to watch because Stuhlbarg really disappears into this role and sells it so perfectly well he, he's um, fantastic i mean it, it really is it, it's funny you say you mentioned Albert Brooks. I hadn't thought of this, but you know, thinking about the character of Alan in The Long Shalom, I can almost picture him as like a young Albert Brooks. You know what? That that, that wouldn't. There, there's a really great movie with Albert Brooks too called Drive, mm-hmm. where um, Albert Brooks and um, Ronald Perlman they play like aging Jewish mobsters. Right. And there's a whole thing like you know, uh, Ronald Ron Perlman's character has this bit where he gets so angry because of how he's treated by the old Italian mobsters who never see him as an equal because he's a Jewish guy. And mm-hmm. it's it, both performances are just spot on perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And Alan's whole thing is kind of, I want to betray like, you know, the tough hard boiled hero who just happens to be Jewish, but also make it so that he's informed by that his character. Um, it's important to him. His culture and faith are extremely uh, vital as far as he goes. And also he has a dark backstory. He's not perfect, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, he's, he's still Jewish at the end of the day. I mean, he's a former, he's a former member of the Jewish mob. Yeah, he's he's and he's you know he's in some ways like one thing I love that you do, and I think you're particularly doing it in the Long Shalom, although I, I believe Hunger's as old as this land as well, is you kind of set up a trope or a caricature to kind of knock it down, yeah, or to invert it in some way, and you know so in like some ways Alan is very much the trope of the kind of the private detective with a past, the troubled noir hero, you right. know, um, but by making him Jew. Uh, making him a Jew and also queer, mm-hmm. you add these like new shades to him and the caricature of Jews in movies and pop culture and literature for so long is the greedy Jew, you know, the money grubbing Jew. And one thing I love, another inversion you have in The Long Shalom is that the greedy people are expressly not the Jewish people. Right. The Italian. And, yeah. It's, it's the, you know, it's the politicians. It's, Right, not the Italians, the mo- the mob. I would, the mafia, you know, right, 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 right. <laughs> no, yeah. And you know his his kind of journey back to nobility and to being a selfless person, you know, because he's been in the shell because of his own trauma, essentially. Right. Where he's really convinced himself, I don't need anybody, I don't care about, anybody, I'm just doing it for a buck, you know. Right. But his his journey back to, I mean, even say it, it's the Jewish saying, uh, and I'm forgetting the Hebrew, but it's the, you know, if you save one person, you save the entire world, you know, right. his journey back to that is his journey back into this Jewish identity. Right. And I was, I was, I was, I was really trying to be careful of how I portrayed that. Like, you know, New York has the corrupt systems. Um, it's not mm-hmm. divided along ethnic groups, except, you know, necessarily, but you have like uh, the worst, some of the worst people are New York politicians <laughs> um, and, right. po- and, and police who are, you know, selling anyone out. It was kind of, you know, old pulp stuff is not very kind to queer people and black people and mm-hmm. Asian people. I wanted very consciously to avert those tropes. I wanted to portray these as 
good, decent human beings who are, you know, not without their flaws, right. but they're fighting to do the right thing. And they're, you know, like they are doing the best with what they have and they are at like their very core noble and they're functioning people like Erica, mm-hmm. um, Erica Nakamura, you know, she is Jewish and Japanese. Right. And, you know, her mother was Jewish. Her father was Japanese. And then Erica's whole thing is, you know, when you see Asian women, in um, a lot of old pulps like what do we see like their sexuality is predatory they are Mm -hmm. they love torture and violence and you know they're the stereotypical dragon lady Mm -hmm. uh you know like i'm not shying away like erica makes it clear she is a you know a sexually active person who and you know she and alan are polyamorous they you know they clearly um had a thing in the past Mm -hmm. but it's not portrayed as a negative or predatory either it's something that just is it's uh a positive attribute for her and something that she, uh, you know, takes some, it's, you know, just showing her as just a, as a person like Erica is not spotless either. She can be manipulative and she can be, um, you know, but it's all for like what she sees as the greater good. And I wanted to right. make her a very fleshed out character in that sense. Well, and you know, yeah, because she's not in 100% honest with Alan from the start, right? But she has her reasons and they're understandable reasons. And even he understands them, you know? Right. And one thing that, so I want to talk uh, just real quick back to the Lovecraft thing, just as an aside. Um, It's interesting hearing, you know, the, if the Lovecraft influence, if it's there, it seems like it's coming more from the people who came after Lovecraft, which I think is probably similar for me. Although I do like, there's some Lovecraft stories that I love, but one thing the long Shalom reminds me of in a way is in, in, in as much as you could say that there's a Lovecraftian element to it. Is have you read uh, the Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval? Yes, that is a that that one is great. It reminds me, of, you know, in there, uh, Victor Laval, he's very much like directly, he's taking Lovecraft's most racist story, yep, and turning it upside down and portraying it from the perspective of a black character. And I feel like in a maybe a little bit more oblique way, that's a little bit how I felt with um, the Long Shalom is that you're letting us into a cosmic horror world that's not expressly lovecraftian right but you're populating it you're bringing us along with all of the characters that lovecraft would have avoided you have a trans woman you have two jews both of whom are queer one of whom is also japanese yep you have a black man and i and i think with hungers as old as this land as well there seems to be and actually i would say wolves within as well there's a theme of you know people are brought up in these family structure you know these cultural structures that they are expected to adhere to but as soon as you're kind of an outcast or another that kind of goes out the window and then you're sort of free to create your own family and, and it's like the idea of the chosen family yes yes 100 percent. um what was i mean is it just that kind of that simple like it, it seems like that seems very important and the idea of intersection i want to talk just a little bit about intersectionality and representation because yes you know that seems to be very important to you um in all of your stories what was it that kind of led you to because it's seems very purposeful obviously kind of what is the drive for you to to make that kind of front and center in your work well it really um for one thing obviously the strong jewish rep is one of the forefronts of it but also i mean Mm -hmm. we live in a divert we live in a diverse world with diverse people Mm -hmm. and i want readers to see themselves reflected there without you know trying to usurp someone else's experience Mm -hmm. i want to make sure that like anyone could crack this open and enjoy a diverse book with a fun cast and you know and basically just have fun i mean i have uh, certain stories that are less diverse than others you know wolves within i thought it would make you know it would make obviously a lot less sense to have racial diversity in you know um medieval bohemia in a sense than it would in 1920s new york but i mean you know 1920s new york was not a white place it was you had black people hispanic people asian people right uh jewish jewish people um queer people have always existed um it's kind of taking that mask off of horror in a sense and making it clear that like you know this is how this is the way it really was this is um how it should be um you know, obviously with, with hungers, I wanted to also establish that there was, you know, that the West was a diverse, was a very diverse place. Mm-hmm. But not only that, Esther and Siobhan, there's kind of a differentiation and marginalization. Mm-hmm. You know, Siobhan is an Irish woman and Irish were certainly not well liked, but they, but, you know, there was that hierarchy. They were held in higher esteem than black people and um, Asian people and obviously, and obviously indigenous people, um, mm-hmm. you know, like Eddie Roosevelt famously said, uh, 
I'm not going to say that every that the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but like nine times out of ten, I wouldn't inquire very much about the tenth. Mm-hmm. It was very much a vehemently racist uh, time, and you mm-hmm. know, I think that in order to kind of like push back on that, you know, in order to move forward as a people, now we need to not whitewash history, and we need to show um, we need to show diversity as a strength. Well, you know, one thing that is interesting about having because you have Esther and her father Abraham. Foxman, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're kind of the, the centerpieces of this essentially Jewish community in Montana. And, you know, growing up in New Mexico, you know, the Jewish history in New Mexico is something that people don't talk about much, but it's very, yeah. it's very important. You know, you have both like the, the immigrant Jews who came in kind of with westward expansion, like the Ilfeld family, they're, they're a big family in New Mexico that uh, became very prominent business people. I think they started, uh, Charles Ilfeld, I believe, started with a grocery store up in Taos and then became a, you know, a major kind of political and economic player in the state. But then we also have out here the idea of the the conversos or the crypto Jews, you mm-hmm. know, who came yep. over essentially with the conquistadors yep. and were hiding their Jewishness essentially from the Inquisition. And so you have this whole, you know, there, there are families here in New Mexico that are discovering this history and that their own religious practices that they've thought of as being Catholic their entire lives are actually Jewish religious practices. And some of them are even embracing and going back to Judaism. And it's really That's kind of an interesting history. Yeah, uh, yeah the, um, I do have a story coming out um, in a couple of months in Fiends in the Furrows 3 that deals with a, uh, a with basically a descendant of Inquisition survivors mm, who, is re- yeah. who is returning back to Spain. And I have a novella that I'm also shopping around for that right now. Nice, yeah. And one thing I like about your approach to the diversity and the, you know, the intersectionality and the representation is that none of it feels like tokenism. You know, you have... I appreciate that. You have these characters like I'm thinking of... Um, why am I blanking on her name in uh, Lenore in uh, yes. the Long Shalom? You know, she's a trans woman. She's a ex-soldier. And it's just kind of like, you know, yeah, that's who she is. There's, you don't spend a lot of time. Look at me. I have a trans woman in the story. You know, she's right. just, she's a character in the story. Same with Roger right. as a black man and Erica being Japanese and Jewish. I mean, it makes it feel much more like a lived reality rather than a constructed, like ticking off a bunch of boxes, you know? Reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, uh, basically it would be very easy to do a story and just make it homophobic or transphobic. And you know mm-hmm. what? Like, that's it's not the story I want to tell. It's not something mm-hmm. I want to it's not something i want to spend much time on there are Mm -hmm. so many other stories where you can look into it and there's so much you know anxiety and you know and um obviously i'm not the person to tell a story about you know transphobia it's just you know people around lenore they know who she is they completely accept who she is and Mm -hmm. there's just not spend a lot of time on that in fact there's one that i also wanted to make clear like one of the major villains who's a dark god from out of time and space you'll notice that he never misgenders lenore that's interesting that I hadn't even picked up on that, but you're right. That's interesting. There, yes, like he just addresses her as Miss Zelinsky. And I just thought, like, hey, you know what? Again, he's a dark god out of time and space. The concept of human gender is almost irrelevant to him. Why would he why wouldn't he see her gender as completely valid? Like, you know, yeah. it's it doesn't make him any less evil, certainly. Right. It doesn't make him like right. It's yeah. just like you no, know, nobody is going to bot like, you know, it's just that nobody in the know is going to is, you know, should be given should be giving any grief for it and that's you know like once again um there are so many gender non-conforming and you know non-binary and gender fluid and trans writers out there right now who can address you know that that subset i don't want to you know tell the story that's not 100 mine i don't think i would have the finesse to do that it's like here's lenore she's a trans woman take or leave it and she's also a badass mm-hmm. she is absolutely a badass part of what i love is the sense of bonding because this feels very real between these characters, some of it came from, you know, their experience. They all served in the war together. Yes. And and that is something I, you know, I've never served in the military, but I have friends they, who have. And they talk about there is a particular bond. If you, if you fought in a war with someone, it does create a very specific kind of bond. And I thought, and again, you don't overstate that, but it very much kind of hovers over those relationships. Yes. And I felt like that. And again, it just makes it feel like a lived in world. Uh, just a couple more. I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I'm I'm really curious about. So each of these stories deals a lot with Jewish mythology and Jewish identity, but you bring in these kind of fantastical elements as well that I think are. Mm-hmm. You know, I think of of the hungers and hungers as old as this land. You know, the, right? Yes. And again, I'm trying to. I don't want to spoil anything. 
or you've got this kind of cosmic horror god that you know again in lovecraftian terms i was sort of thinking like almost reminds me of nyarla totep except i'll go ahead and say the name uh hadrian is mm-hmm. he seems very specific like you said he has a very specific personality and specific yes how do you balance those you know those real world you know because one thing you know again as growing up jewish mm-hmm. my dad is an engineer he's very pragmatic so he didn't mm-hmm. actually he haven't he just doesn't have any interest in um like jewish folklore so right. you know a lot of that is actually fairly new to me and i've been kind of trying to learn more about it but how do you balance those kind of historical folkloric aspects with the more fantastical imaginative aspects so a huge part of Jewish folklore is, you know, kind of, and also part of Judaism is asking questions, is mm-hmm. understanding things aren't necessarily defined. There are right. a zillion different ways to interpret scripture mm-hmm. and a zillion, and, you know, that's why the Talmud exists, because like, there's 2,000 pages plus of debate and discussion and laying mm-hmm. down laws and analysis and so much over and over and over that it's just, you know, you really just have to kind of take the perspective of here's the world. Here's how the world stands, but there's also so much else that you can do with it. Like the idea, um, the idea of a vast cosmos, the idea of like a vast ancient cosmos, the idea that maybe there are other gods, it's just the Jews, um, you know, cannot worship them and they are just mm-hmm. forbidden worship of anything but the one God. Um, I, I remember mm-hmm. a rabbi saying, you know, uh, that, you know, there was nothing saying that God was infallible that mm-hmm. um, basically it says in scripture, oh, God uh, regretted uh, something here, or here's a bit mm-hmm. where God arguing with abraham like you know um a god who is infallible and all-knowing wouldn't regret something it doesn't mean Mm -hmm. that um god is any less but you know it's it's hard to define it in a sense so in my writing i want to get the idea of you know there's it's a vast 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 cosmic sphere and there's Mm -hmm. only so much we can understand of it and and being forced to question and being forced to accept there's stuff we don't know and never know is a part of being jewish as well um Mm -hmm. like you know there's a very famous part of Ezekiel of going up in the wheel of fire and, you know, seeing mysterious creatures that come out of the sky right. and how angels look. And like, there's all sorts of cool Jewish folklore creatures all over the place mm-hmm. that it just real, um, that's like mentioned the Talmud that you can really uh, just kind of just do a lot with. And obviously there's a lot of times where I'm just using my imagination where I'm just saying like, sure. Hey, this is something I'm kind of taking from folklore is just in name only. I'm going to bend it a little and I'm going to do my own thing with it. But I mean, you know, Hey, Christian, Christian folk, Christian, uh, par does that all the freaking time. Why should we be left out? <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's interesting you talking about the idea of like God, not necessarily being infallible and that being right. Sort of an accepted idea amongst, uh, in, in Jewish theology, because right. again, like I grew up around Southern baptists and uh right that is not it's very the much god <laughs> right and and also you know and there's it's it's certainly not the only view there are so many mm-hmm. different, you know you have jewish uh you have jewish agnostics or jewish atheists and you have mm-hmm. jewish you know orthodox and jewish reform and you know like obviously it's all discussion it's all a debate and that's just kind of how and that's like kind of that's kind of how it goes yeah, well, and that's such the interesting thing about Jewish identity because you know there is there's a religious aspect, there's a cultural aspect, right? There's an ethnic aspect, there's a racial aspect, and then race with Jews. You know, the question of race with Jews gets very complicated. But like you said, it leaves a lot of room for a lot of different experiences and a lot of different interpretations. And yeah, what I like about particularly like the Long Shalom is I actually again as someone who knows a little bit of Jewish folklore, but I'm not certainly not an expert in it. I can't quite tell the line between the stuff that is folkloric and the stuff that is uh, your imagination bringing into it. It all blends so well. Um, and everything is balanced really well (laughs) against each other i really like that yeah there's one like uh yeah no i really um i I really enjoy exploring jewish folklore and doing my own things with it um Mm -hmm. my 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 coming pirate one is going to have a lot of that actually oh cool (laughs) Uh, pirate story yeah yes the devil's in the deep blue sea where there's a crew where there's a whole dybbuk pirate crew oh nice uh so yeah, there, there, there's a lot. There's a lot of stuff I like blending in there. There's a lot of stuff I like exploring more through folklore. Some things are more folklore heavy than others, and some just take the idea of Jewish Jewish culture and Jewish identity, and you know, just put that mm-hmm. through a horror lens. Uh, there's one actually. I just have it over here right now. This one just came out. Um, I'm, I'm in this one, uh, Unspeakable Horror Three, where I have a story called the Mikvah, 
mm. which is about a um, Jewish, which is a pogrom against the Jews in uh, Russia, Ukraine, mm-hmm. and kind of how they've, and like, it kind of speaks to the idea of like the land around them is alive and it's kind of gone through a conversion because it loves the people who live in it. And w- so what is that? that? What is that anthology again? It is Unspeakable Horror 3, Dark Rainbow Rising. Okay, I'll I'll and put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you. It is uh, my story, The Mikvah. It is one I'm very proud of. Um, a lot of, like, you know, some of the stuff I also deal with is Jews, um, how they handle the existence of other gods or creatures. Mm-hmm. My story in Fiends in the Furrows is called The Gods That Drift With Us, and it kind of addresses some of that in a sense, where it kind of blends Jewish folklore uh, through that, through that way. You know, the exploration, I really like exploring themes of oppression and redemption. Um, you know, Wolves Within is the idea of uh, marginalized uh, marginalized people who, you know, find strength and solace in one another. I did a uh, mm-hmm. another, I'm just throwing this one out there. Um, it's it's uh, in Diet Milk magazine called um, The Blackest Heart, which is like a dark Jewish gothic. Mm. Where, um, you know, you'll find some, again, some similar themes. And I've got that one's actually going to be serialized. I just turned in the uh, the second entry. And one I'm actually very fond of where I kind of put it in a sci-fi context was um, was called uh, Savior and Steel, which came out in Dark Matter magazine, which is kind of like a cyberpunk golem. Oh, nice. <laughs> which I had a lot of fun, which I yeah. that, that was a lot of fun with. And they were uh, they, they, they were great to work with. So I have uh, a lot that comes in there that also addresses themes again oppression and fighting back mm-hmm. but also sometimes it's just how you deal with grief and pain and the world right. and how and really break you down and that's something that i think is also very important to explore one one thing that seems clear in a lot of ways is you know and i even see i think it's on your bio you you, you refer to yourself as a jewish horror writer or writer of jewish yes. horror you know you're definitely not like a traditionalist or you know mm-hmm. you're you're definitely willing to kind of push past oh yeah the boundaries of uh, and bring a lot of your own perspective and a lot of a modern perspective into your work. Yeah. Real quick. I, so uh, sure. one thing you mentioned, well, I guess before I get to this, I, I just want to ask uh, one last question about hungers uh, as old as this land. So again, you know, the setup is you have these two women in a relationship. They're, they're part of this Jewish community. That's like on the sort of in the foothills of these mountains where something is in the mountains. Right. And then you have these these raiders come in and essentially mm-hmm. attack the town. So, you know, the you again with the question of horror and the idea of the other, it's like what is the other? Is it this Jewish community? Is it the the raiders, these kind of psychotic raiders coming in? Or is it what's in the uh in the mountains? Talk about the without giving too much away, <laughs> but I found the whatever it is that's in the mountains. And again, I'm trying to be a little bit circumspect i actually found really pretty scary and i feel like there's a tie to wolves within there can you uh just talk a little bit about where that idea comes from and am i right is there a tie to wolves within or is it a little more like indirect honestly honestly no um i actually didn't have any idea that they were connected whatsoever when i was writing wolves within <laughs> Interesting. Um, yeah no that that was actually not my intention at all but that's actually very interesting kind of the idea of hungers uh was brought about from how do i want to say this it came from the ideas of kind of weird West horror I've seen before, of like the mm-hmm. idea of just kind of monsters that are just so old that, you know, settlers kind of run into them and they don't understand them. And, you know, it's blood ensues. Really, it's just a matter of wanting to do something with a cool monster that of my own creation that goes along with the theme, the idea mm-hmm. of this world is, is ancient. It is billions of years old. Mm-hmm. The idea that, um, you know, the settlers think they can tame it, that they can control it, they can right. dominate it and make it their own. And it's like, not exactly. Um, there, <laughs> there, there are things beyond your pen and how that ties in to the theme of hunger, that overpowering um, mm-hmm. theme of theme of hunger and strength and, you know, and darkness and everything that goes with it. But the idea of like, you know, this is something, this is something old. You've wandered into its lair. It's been here before. It will be here after you. Mm-hmm. And you are just, you know, you're just basically shit out of luck there. Well, um, and I, I love the setup. And, and again, trying to try to be a little bit circumspect. Okay. But, you know, the what is in the mountains um, is not necessarily <laughs> the villain of the story. Right. We have, um, I'm forgetting the character's name now. Um, Cyril. The, yes, Cyril. Uh, redstone so redstone who basically in an opportunistic way realizes you know he's been hired to essentially secure this land for for a, a i guess a banker a businessman in a nearby town but he kind of goes a little bit 
let's just say he goes pretty far in trying to accomplish his mission, which is to essentially attack and sack this town. And I don't think that's too much of a spoiler because that happens pretty early. Nope, nope. It's right, right, it's right uh, there on the back. Yeah. And the idea that this community, this you know, sort of isolated Jewish community in the West, has a very tentative truce with whatever is in the mountains. I found really interesting. And I'm always I always find actually really scary the idea of like I'm allying myself with this thing that can turn on me at any second, you know? Yeah. We may have, we may be going the same direction right now, but I can never turn my back on this thing. Yeah. And yeah. that, I think that's what I found kind of scary about, about the mountains um, is whatever it is that's there. It's like, they're not your friend. No, no, absolutely. You may not. have a truce with them. You may have kind of a detente, but they're not your friend. You can never fool yourself into thinking that they're your friends. I've, right. I've, found that really really spooky and really powerful yeah that's something that that, that's a theme in horror i really enjoy the uncontrollable that you are not necessarily controlling but that is tolerating you it is managed Mm -hmm. you you have managed to be on its good side and you but you have to follow some very specific rules to keep that going Mm -hmm. and you know they're like they're not your uh they're not your friend they're not your uh they're not your buddy you're not inviting them to like the family shabbat (laughs) You right. are uh, like, you know, these, these, these are very dangerous creatures, but they're not like really good or evil. They just have their own, uh, they just have their own, you know, code in the way they view the world. Mm-hmm. And part of that is stay the hell out of our territory. One, you know, it, it reminds me almost of, I don't know if you've read it and I'm forgetting, I, I don't think I'm going to get the title exactly right, but it's one of my favorite Stephen King short stories it's from Night Shift. Is it the, sometimes they come back. Um, yes. Uh, where you know it's the idea of like i can harness this unknowable power or unknowable intelligence for my benefit but um what am i what am i costing myself what what risk am i putting myself in to harness that and that's a little bit what it feels like in hungers um yeah uh that is that that is definitely that is definitely a big part of it um you know, it's it's funny you mention that it's like the idea you are playing with you are playing with very dangerous forces and there you know there's the old saying lay no lay uh call up no more devils than you can lay down mm, i love that <laughs> all right well just the last thing i want to just very briefly talk about please you mentioned a movie so one thing i've been doing on this podcast is i've been having people kind of bring a movie to the table something that was inspiring in some way that maybe doesn't get talked about enough sure and on this panel at StokerCon, you mentioned a movie i you know i'm a horror guy but i also like i said i'm from new mexico i'm i love westerns and I really love spaghetti westerns a lot of times because it's like mm-hmm. it's a version of the West that is not particularly the version of the West that I live in, you know, because obviously mm-hmm. there's things are all shot in Spain or Italy. Or, right, 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 right. And so it's this weird kind of liminal space <laughs> Western <laughs> that's a little surreal for me. Um, but you mentioned one in particular, uh, a movie called The Great Silence. Yes. Okay. The director is Sergio Corbucci. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, he, also, one. he did the Django. Uh, movies or at least the first year uh, just yeah just, just the first one italy has terrible copyright laws so people just like take so <laughs> take people the just title take the title and it's like it. you know, they're, 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 there's pretty much like two django movies with uh with uh, what's his name um with franco nero and the rest mm-hmm. are just using the name where it's it, it goes yeah. pretty yeah there, anyways there's there's no real cohesion between them but yeah corbucci is one of my favorite corbucci is one of my favorites and you know he is um, was was very much a leftist, and he used the West, uh, the American West, as a vehicle for that for those politics, mm. and very metaphorical for what he believed in and transporting uh, oppressive systems onto, you know, fa- on fascists of people like Confederates and American mm. robber barons and things like mm-hmm. that. The Great Silence was it was a little bit unexpected for me. <laughs> Ooh, you saw it? And one thing is, I didn't read anything about it before I watched it. Oh, I just watched it this oh. weekend. I'm sorry. <laughs> I have to say, like, and I loved, I have to say, I loved it. Um, it's it's, it's up there among my favorite. I mean, I, I think my two favorite Westerns of all time will, will still always be Unforgiven and Once Upon a Time in the West. But yeah. this is going to be right up there with it. And I have to say, I don't think I've seen a bleak, not only a bleaker Western, but just sort of a bleaker movie in a long it time. It is a very, very bleak. Um, I mean, you know, like, should we spoiler, spoiler alert this? Yeah, we'll go ahead and throw it in right now. If you don't yeah. want to know uh, where <laughs> the Great Silence goes, you turn it off now. Spoil this movie like hell for you. Yeah, but yeah, um, the Great Silence is something I think needs to be experienced like at least once. It is not a happy film. It sets no. up so much. 
Uh, it, it really gives you these likable characters, Silence and Pauline, uh, mm-hmm. the sheriff. And, you know, at the very end of the day, Silence loses. He doesn't just mm-hmm. lose. He's killed. His gun is taken by the bad guys. The bad mm-hmm. guys win. Everything goes down that way. And, you know, but like um, Corbucci is kind of saying, like, this is what oppressive structures do. If you're so mm-hmm. mad at this in fiction, why aren't you turning your eye into that in reality? Mm-hmm. It's like, and the way it's portrayed is silence is a victim of greedy bankers and, you know, and the villains are bounty hunters who come in with the power of the law behind them. Like mm-hmm. it is the power of the oppressive state versus the people and minorities and out and, you know, it makes outlaws of people. It is just such a smart, unwasted film that is absolutely incredible in its construction and how much it makes you care about this so we can deliver like this last uh, blow. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Silence is not a profoundly noble hero. And at the end of the day, it avails him nothing. Yeah, He is, you know, shot down and that's that. The only kind of comfort you can take from it is the end is so brutal that it implies that um, they will, like it will lead to the end of bounty hunting eventually. Mm-hmm. But that is very. But even then, is left as a little bit of a like a little right. bit of a question, <laughs> right? There actually yeah. was a happier ending film because like they were worried mm-hmm. about how the bleaker one would play in certain markets. Yeah, I read they, about that, and apparently, it did not work at all. Yeah, actually, it is. It is <laughs> fucking hilarious because like you know, Silence about to go down, and the sheriff rides in out of nowhere, and he shoots Loco down, and Silence really is not really injured because he was wearing a gauntlet on his hand. He guns down all the bandits, yeah, and like you know, the deputy and like the sheriff makes him his deputy, and, he, and Silence gives like this epic smile. I'm like, oh my god, this is like like this is like a dying dream Silence could have as, he, as he's been shot in the face. <laughs> yeah, but I read I read about that on just because I read about it after I finally watched the movie. It's on it's it's it's, it's, it's on YouTube. It is like it, it is. Just Jelly movie that feels like a gut punch. It is one of the most upsetting films I think I have it's, ever watched. I love it for it. People talk about to put it in so just a little bit of for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's again, it's a very typical Western setup in some ways where you have this community that is being sort of driven into the ground by these sort of banking interests that are essentially turning the people of the town into bandits to survive. Right. And so then the banking interests uh, hire the bounty hunters. Bounty, hire these bounty killers, essentially, just to come yeah. and kill people. Oh. Of course, Local. led by Klaus Kinski, who, I mean, he, like Klaus Kinski, obviously, if you know anything about him, was a horrible human being, but man, could he. Horrible person, great actor. Great actor, and particularly in a role like this. You know, he's the head of the bounty killers. And then you have this character of Silence who has. we'll just say a historic grudge against the bounty killers and and the banking interests who is a mute essentially had his vocal cords slashed who comes in and he's like the best gunfighter around and he's here to fight the bounty killers and it's like you know so you think it's the setup of of every western we've ever seen you know you got the bad guys riding into town and here comes the lone hero to save them and then it completely turns that upside down yeah i would say the closest if you want to put it in like modern pop cultural terms, the experience I had when Silence finally gets killed at the end is the experience everyone had at the end of the first season of Game of Thrones when uh, Ned Stark Ned, gets yeah. chopped off. Because <laughs> it's the most noble character in the movie and his nobility, like you said, earns him absolutely nothing. Yeah, it yeah. is incredibly bleak. But putting it in that kind of... And I hadn't realized until, again, reading a little bit on Corbucci, this kind of political allegory context really makes it make sense. Very much so. Corbucci was, uh, you know, one, one of the reasons I love Spaghetti Western so much is they were very more apt to say, like, you know, the Confederacy was was pure evil and they use it as an allegory for fascism mm-hmm. and brutality mm-hmm. and cruelty. There's other films like, you know, Django does that. Uh, Requiescant is one I'm very fond of. Where the villain is a, uh, where Requiescant, if you haven't seen it, you really should. It is like about a survivor of a massacre. He fights this former Confederate officer turned uh, aristocrat. Hmm. And um, like one of the, one of the lead characters is uh, played by, you know, Piero Paolo Pasolini, the great Marxist director. Mm, yeah. Who's essentially playing a, who's playing the head of the revolution, but he's essentially a socialist uh, uprising. Who's like, says like, you know, this victory belongs to all of us. Oh, wow. <laughs> like it's. Well, what it's is that really, one called again? We have to watch that. Uh, Requ- Requiescant. 
Reckless Gun. Okay, yeah, I'm. I think after watching The Great Silence, is gonna, I'm in a little bit of a binging spaghetti western. Yeah, it's phase. also called it's also called Kill and Pray, so you might be able to find it on that. Okay, but it's real. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's a really good film. I really recommend it. I recommend anything uh, Corbucci has done. I recommend um, remember some others. Yeah, there there there's there's really really no shortage of fantastic spaghetti westerns. Um, obviously, everything by Sergio Leone, but everyone knows Sergio Leone. Sure. Yeah. He's he's like so the he's, he's right. the, like you said about R.L. Stein. He's the gateway drug. Into right. A bullet for the general. Kom for the apocalypse. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! For the apocalypse. Yeah. That's that, that's the only western. That's one of the few westerns uh, Lucio Fulci made. That is dark, 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 dark. Ooh, I'll have to check that one. Out. It is it is very good. One thing that I found interesting, you know, you know, my definition of horror has always been. You know, as opposed to like sci-fi, you know, to me, sci-fi mm-hmm. is like taking the logical world that we're in now and extrapolating beyond what we know, but it still mm-hmm. fits within the framework of a logical world. And then fantasy is like creating a world with its own sense of logic. Like Harry Potter, there happen to be wizards or, you know, right? Jared Tolkien, you know, there are elves and ogres. And, and to me, horror is about taking the logical world and then introducing something unknowable or irrational into it. And that creates like a very particular sense of dread. And in that sense, there's a part of the great silence to me that actually feels like it almost works as a horror movie because the character of Loco. Sorry, say again. I kind of, I kind of agree with that. And Loco is just such a fascinating villain for me. Mm -hmm. um, Because he's a horror character. He's there's something unknowable and irrational about him. He's so businesslike in how he conducts things. I don't think that it's necessarily a coincidence that he has no personal connection to Silence whatsoever. Uh, the banker mm-hmm. Pollock is Silence's enemy, right. but Loco has no real feelings about him one way or the other. Like no. Loco, Loco doesn't really seem to care about him, except that he's a barrier to his to the job he's trying to do. Yeah, yeah there's which, something about him that just feels like a personification of evil that's almost supernatural. Or- but like you said, it's all business to him. You know, the evil is sort of put in this kind of capitalistic framework, which makes sense with the leftist politics. It's a really yep. interesting film. It's I definitely, uh, I'm glad that I watched it. It's got me interested to, you know, I've always loved spaghetti westerns, but there are a lot that I haven't seen, and it's got me wanting to go back and get into some of the more obscure ones. So, yeah, no, one hundred percent. You like, I, I'm, I'm still finding stuff new with the genre. I absolutely love it. Uh, the idea that Lucio Fulci made one. I did not know that. So yeah, for the apocalypse, that. for the, for the apocalypse, shouldn't be hard to track down. I think it's pretty famous. Okay, yeah, I will definitely be checking that out. Oh, my well, pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on the show. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but. Uh, this was a really great conversation. 100%. Very, I had I had a blast. Thank you so much, man. Yeah. And I'd love uh, when you got some of uh, your new stuff coming out, if you're, if you're interested in coming on again and just talking about the, the, the new stuff, that'd be great. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I would 100% love to. Well, that was another episode of Horror from the High Desert. Thank you very much to Zachary Rosenberg for coming on. And I just want to remind everyone, if you can, go ahead and rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends, spread the word, and I will be back in a couple weeks.